listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. We'll take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're moving into chapter 10 here in our study of 1 Corinthians. Last week at the end of chapter 9, uh, Paul was talking about his self-discipline as he lives the Christian life and as he fulfills the ministry that God has given to him. And in the very last verse of uh, chapter 9, he explains one of the concerns uh, that has animated and driven that commitment to self-discipline. He says that he is concerned lest after having preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. Uh, in the old King James, it's the word castaway there. Uh, I might be disqualified. The word in the original language is a docomas. Uh, Paul is very determined to be an authentic Christian, and not simply to be a superficial uh, Christian, so that the appearance is all that you get. Um, all fluff, no substance. And so he wants there to be a reality behind what you uh, can see. More than just the message, but also the man must be gripped by and shaped by the gospel. Paul wants to be authentic. And I think it's easy for us, uh, easy certainly for me, to relate to the challenge of authenticity. Uh, it's easy to slap a smile on your face, to project that you have it all together, Uh, We can put it on almost like a tuxedo or a fancy evening gown for a special occasion. But in reality, our hearts may be very far from the Lord. And so Paul does not want to fake it. He wants to be the real deal, uh, we sometimes say. He never wants to presume upon grace so that he can uh, almost shrug and indulge his sin because he knows that presumption like that, when it becomes a way of life, results in what he describes as disqualification. He knows that it's possible to preach the truth as he did so faithfully Uh, to be a missionary, a church planter for the Lord Jesus Christ as he was, to exercise great giftedness, uh, make a real difference for good in the lives of others as he did, and still be nothing more than a religious professional. Having preached to others himself, still be disqualified. It's a sober warning at the end of chapter 9 about the dangers of presumption. And when we presume something... Uh, then we tend to naturally take it for granted, uh, and then we become almost calloused or careless uh, in those relationships. I can't tell you how many times I've had couples in my office uh, needing marital counseling, uh, and inevitably, as we dig a little deeper into some of the symptoms that they are experiencing and describing, we're trying to find the root cause. Many times, one or the other will say something like this, well, I just started taking him for granted, or I started taking her for granted. Uh, and so that is this, almost this presumption uh, that, uh, that we can fall into. And that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here. That's the theme as he continues to move into chapter 10. Now we, we recognize that the chapter divisions are not inspired in the same way that the text of God's Word is. And so 
Uh, many times we say, well, I'm going to read this chapter today, but what you really need to do to understand the full uh, context there is you've got to read the chapter before sometimes or uh, what follows. Uh, and this is one of those cases where the same flow of thought just kind of follows into chapter 10 as the Apostle Paul unpacks this idea of presumptuous, uh, careless uh, Christian living. Now, all this talk about being disqualified almost seems to suggest that Paul was worried that he might lose his salvation. Uh, the slogan, once saved, always saved. Uh, that's something that a lot of people say as soon as you, know, you have a conversation and they discover that I pastor a Baptist church. And like, oh, you people, you believe once saved, always saved, right? And I'll say, well... Uh, let's talk about that phrase for just a moment. Uh, And and the problem uh, with slogans like that is that they very often fail to really deal with biblical nuance. Uh, Very important. And when you come to texts like this, the, 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 the phrase, once saved, always saved, at least when it's understood to mean that if you've made a decision for Jesus, it really doesn't matter how you live, can sometimes lead us to think, well, after I've made my commitment to Jesus, then I'm kind of done now. Uh, How I live my life is of little significance. I'm secure. I've got my fire insurance. And so it really doesn't matter how I live. That is not at all the teaching of Scripture. And certainly not what the Apostle Paul is getting at here uh, in our text this morning. A better way, if you want to really summarize biblical teaching, is to use the language of the security of the believer or uh, even the word perseverance. Because perseverance is the promise of God to his children. God will secure and preserve his people so that they will persevere to the end. That's a great promise of God to us. And so our security is not found so much in our ability to cling to God but in his ability to cling to us. Uh, So often we want to make it all about us, okay? It's my ability to just grip my teeth and try harder and and hang on for dear life and all those things. Sometimes the Christian life can feel that way, like we're just just hanging on. Uh, One of the ways in which he enables us to persevere is by working the scriptures into our hearts and warning us about the dangers of presumption as he does here moving into chapter 10, showing us where the danger lies and warning us to flee from that danger. So you imagine a, a, a parent. Okay, and Many of us have experienced this at one time or another, something like it anyway. You maybe pull into a parking lot to go into a store or whatever, and if you've got uh, one or two or three or four or six kids or whatever, whatever the case is, you know, a lot of times one of those toddlers can kind of you know, slip free. And the next thing you know, you look up and they're heading out into, you know, one of the main lanes of where oncoming traffic is or something, or even heading toward a road. And you know that as a parent, that's dangerous. And so what do you do in that moment? Well, well, you give a certain warning. I mean, you may have to raise your voice. You may have to shout, stop. You may have to, I mean, you, you, you take measures into your own hands. And I mean, you do whatever it takes to get them to, to, to stop what they're doing, to stop the direction that they're going. And that's, that's essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Even when you do that, even if you have to give a stern warning, kind of a forceful sort of warning that involves even raising your voice or something, becoming very animated and uh, whatever else, uh, you know that that is characterized by love. It's not just because you're trying to restrict your kid's freedom. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, I, just, I just don't want you to roam. No, no it, it's because you know the dangers that are inherent there. And that's what we see here with the Apostle Paul. This section is filled with a stern warning. Every word of it, though, beats with, uh, uh, with a father's love for his children as he seeks to protect and preserve 
and enable us ultimately to persevere. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 together. So if you have your Bibles there, I hope you'll follow along. If not, uh, it should be up on the screen there. The Apostle Paul again writes, and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Several years ago, uh, I remember reading a story of a group of teenagers who were enjoying themselves in Central Park there in Manhattan. Uh, they walked out on the ice on one of the ponds there. They were jumping around and laughing and joking, enjoying their time together, taking selfies on the ice, when suddenly the ice began to crack and to give way under their feet, and, and many, if not most of them, were, were plunged into the frigid waters. A couple of passers-by saw what was happening, and they, they tried to jump to their aid, even jumping into those frigid waters, and soon discovered that, uh, that they were uh, unable to, uh, to, to bring these kids to safety as they were being pulled down by these frantic kids naturally. And so thankfully, mercifully, in the kindness of God, the fire department arrived in time to rescue everyone involved in that. Well, as we read 1 Corinthians 10 here, it's almost as though the Apostle Paul was standing on the shoreline pleading with us to get off of the thin ice. You ever had someone say that to you when you're maybe expressing an idea, an opinion, or talking about a direction that you're going to take, a decision that you've made, and they may say, I don't know about that, you're on thin ice right there. You're on thin ice. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Understanding that beneath the Corinthians' feet, the ice is dangerously thin, and they need to get to safety to get off the thin ice. Paul is warning them, and certainly warning us, and pleading with us to flee the dangers of presumptuous Christian living that allows us to indulge in sin and assume that everything will be well. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, that the Apostle Paul gives us examples to warn us. It gives us some examples to warn us. If you'll look at verses 1 through 5 again, we're back in the story of the Exodus where Israel was led by the Lord out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And Paul is he's carefully drawing parallels between their experience and our experience. Between the experience of the, the, the fathers of Israel and the people of God, the Corinthians. And like us, Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that they had a kind of baptism. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were led through the wilderness by the presence of God, portrayed before them visibly, you remember the story, in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And they were led uh, through dry land, through the middle of the Red Sea. We just sang about it a moment ago. Then you know how the Lord parted the waters there at the Red Sea that they might escape their Egyptian pursuers. And Paul says being under the cloud like this, passing through the sea like this, was a picture, a kind of baptism for them. Or he reminds them in verses 3 and 4 that even the people of God in the Old Covenant ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink when Moses in Exodus chapter 16, remember he struck the rock when the people began to complain and the Lord caused water to flow from the rock to quench their thirst. And Paul says there's a parallel between the Israelites' experience and our own. That's why we often say what is pictured in the Old Testament uh, what is sometimes appears to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. All these things pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the truth uh, to which these things point, both in the Old and New Testaments, is the same. He says it all points to Christ. Christ the rock. Christ is the one uh, to whom all of this pointed, just as baptism and the Lord's Supper point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So his big point is that there's this parallel of experience and continuity between God's people in both the Old and New Testaments. And Christ is at the heart. Christ is at the heart. And so he's established now this analogy, you might say, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of us in the church of Jesus Christ today, the implications of this whole conclusion, which we see there in verse number 5, really lands with a stunning force. They were baptized like us. They ate and drank spiritual food like us. Jesus was offered to them just as he is offered to us. And yet, verse number 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Of the generation that came out of Egypt and began their pilgrimage toward the promised land, you remember how many actually made it, don't you? Of that generation, only two. Only Joshua and Caleb. So he's saying, beware the dangers of presumption. That's the warning of the passage. You may be standing on very thin ice. You say, but I've been baptized. That's, that's great. That's great that you give public witness to your faith in Jesus Christ. Super important. You sit at the Lord's table. That's great too. We know what that pictures, the, the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood. You've had various spiritual experiences, maybe in a camp setting, for example, or in a revival meeting or, or something of that nature. That's great. Well, so did our fathers in the wilderness, is what Paul's saying. And God judged all but two of that first generation. With most of them, God was not pleased. It's the same point Paul was making regarding his own life and his own ministry back at the end of chapter 9 that we just talked about, about the danger of being disqualified even after having preached to others. You can have so much. You can enjoy the great privileges and blessings of outward association with the visible church of Jesus Christ, and still you can fail to receive the Lord Jesus himself who comes to us and is offered to us by grace through faith. So the key point here is that you know Jesus Christ. You know Jesus. It's not a matter of do you know about Jesus Christ. 
You can walk up to a lot of people today on the street and say, do you know of Jesus Christ? And they'll say, sure. Some will say, well, he was a great teacher. Some will say he was a revolutionary leader. Some will say, you know, a, a prophet and all, all these various things. But the, the, the heart of the matter is, do you personally know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? That's the point that Paul is making here. Perhaps the Corinthians had started viewing baptism and the Lord's Supper and their visible association with the church as some sort of a flu shot, so to speak kind of inoculation against the possibility of spiritual danger. But Paul says, remember the examples of our fathers and be warned. They enjoyed the same types of things. But more is needed than than just these outward expressions. You need Jesus Christ himself. What use drinking from the rock if you don't realize the true rock from which you drink and live is Christ? What use eating the bread and drinking the cup if you don't actually come by faith to feed on Christ, his body broken, his blood shed for sinners like you and me at Calvary? What protection do you think your your baptism affords you or your church membership provides you? If after having received these things, experienced these things, you neglect the inner spiritual reality that they are intended and designed to offer you, even Jesus Christ himself. So first of all, they're examples designed to warn us, to remind us not to presume upon God, but to pursue the one thing needful, to know Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord? I want you to notice the second thing that Paul gives us here. He gives us some exhortations to guide us. They're not particularly difficult, uh, not uh, especially complicated exhortations. They're straightforward challenges to stay away from sin. Sometimes we need to hear that. Uh, I I can remember a number of times uh, when my older three kids particularly were younger and and even still with Addie, of course, uh, when you have to go into that correcting mode as a parent And you'll do much like the Apostle Paul does here. You'll give them examples many times of what can happen if you make poor choices. Uh, On the other hand, here's here's what God promises in his word if we will walk in obedience to him and, and all these sorts of things. And then a lot of times you have to just straight up exhort them. Let let me just cut to the chase. Let me just put this on the bottom shelf where you can completely and fully understand what I'm trying to say to you. I don't want there to be any ambiguity in this. Okay, let's be crystal clear. That's essentially what Paul is doing here. Sometimes we need to hear that. We need to be told to stop it. Stay away. Don't play with fire. Don't reach up for the boiling pot on the stovetop. And that is what Paul is doing with us here as he continues to reflect on even the experience of the, uh, the Israelites in the Exodus. Now, there are four sins in particular that he highlights, and you'll notice that here. We've actually seen them as what we would consider very real plagues uh, in the spiritual life of the Corinthian believers. And perhaps they resonate uh, with your own Christian life and experience as well. Certainly, uh, the besetting sins of Israel during the Exodus. The first one is idolatry. Notice verse number 7. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul is thinking about the events recorded in Exodus chapter 32. You probably remember 
Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord God. The people at the base of the mountain, they're getting impatient. Anybody identify with that? They say to Aaron, make us gods. So he gathers up their jewelry and he casts a golden calf for them and declares, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And they have this amazing celebration of worship, adoring and worshiping the golden calf. The comment of the text is that the people during their worship, as part of their worship, sat down to eat and rose up to play. That's what Paul's referencing. They were worshiping an idol. And you remember that the Corinthians, some of them were struggling with some of these very things. They had been converted in the midst of and out of uh, a grossly pagan culture, uh, idolatry even. There were temples and statues and idols all over the city. That was the culture of Corinth in their day. And they had been recently converted out of this lifestyle. And so that's why in chapter number 8, Paul dealt with this question about whether uh, believers could legitimately eat meat that had once been offered to an idol. And Paul says... As long as you don't cause a weaker Christian to stumble, you're free to do that. But remember, love constrains liberty. Others at Corinth were using that freedom and even going a step further, apparently. They were worshiping, actually attending the sacred meals that were integral elements of pagan idolatry in the temples at Corinth themselves. And so the Apostle Paul will have to say to them very directly, very plainly, flee from idolatry. Stop it. Enough. Now, although we may not worship literal statues or images, I hope that you don't, we too, if we're completely honest, tend to have an idolatry problem. Our great idol, the great idol that all of us struggle with, is the idol of self. And Paul is saying, just like the Corinthians were having the Lord's Supper on Sunday, it seemed, and then on Monday eating and drinking in the temple of an idol, so also we must be aware and beware not to give vent to the passions of our flesh in pursuit of the worship of ourselves. That's why the day in which we live, the motto is, if it feels good, do it. You do you. It's all about self-love, and, 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 and it's all about self Of course, we could make a very long list of things which we can so quickly idolize. Any number of things. Materialism. Sports. I love sports. But those things can quickly become idols for us. So Paul addresses idolatry. And then once again, he addresses this matter of sexual immorality. We must not indulge, he says, in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So here the Apostle Paul has in mind Numbers chapter 25 where the people of Israel began to practice sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab as part of the pagan worship of their Canaanite god, Baal. God destroyed 23,000 in one day, Paul says. 24,000 altogether, it tells us in Numbers chapter 25. And so in a similar way, so much of the hypersexualized culture at Corinth was also bound up in the vile practices of the temple of Aphrodite and Apollo that dominated the city. That's why Paul, it seems, continues to address this issue with the Corinthian believers. Sexual sin, as we've seen in the book of 1 Corinthians, was a real problem even to those who had been converted to faith in Christ. We too have a real problem in our culture and our society. 
It's everywhere. It's normalized. It's made into entertainment. Pornography is epidemic today. The norms of our culture shifted so that what is acceptable socially and culturally very different than it once was. And there's a, a kind of sexual obsession. It's part of our worship of self. We're obsessed with sex because we're obsessed with self. And so sex in the culture's mind is not about love or giving or serving or celebrating someone else. No, it's in our culture's mind in many respects. It's about expressing ourselves, gratifying ourselves, worshiping ourselves. Then he addresses this matter of putting the Lord to the test. Putting the Lord to the test. Look at verse number 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This time he's referencing an incident that took place in Numbers chapter 21. People complaining about the provision of food that God had given them in the wilderness and his, his care for them. They were saying, you know, things were so much better back in Egypt. And Egypt for them was not a Sunday school picnic. Okay, they were enslaved there. And yet here they are because this, this grumbling spirit, this complaining spirit has risen up to the point that they're like, I just wish we were back there. They were complaining at the provision of God, dissatisfied and putting him to the test. Now, isn't it tempting for us to also be dissatisfied with God's provision? To think of life back in Egypt, as it were, as the happy life and not the hardship and the challenges of following Jesus and to complain and to test the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. That leads to dissatisfaction and grumbling. And related to that, there's this final sin that Paul mentions in verse number 10, this sin of grumbling. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So we don't know which specific incident Paul has in mind here because in many ways, this is what characterized the Israelites' experience in the wilderness. If you study their history and you, you read your Old Testament, you'll discover it's just like this vicious cycle. Always grumbling and complaining about something. Always grumbling and complaining about something. And it's easy for us to look at that and go, what a shame. God had given them so much. God had done so much for them. And look at how they grumble. But if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. So while it may be hard to identify that specific incident, we know that this is something that characterized the people of Israel in their, in their wilderness wanderings. Uh, several years ago, I, I had the opportunity to spend a week over in the United Kingdom preaching outside of London at a conference there. And I noticed that when you would ask people, how they were doing? How's it going? You know, something like that. A common response in the UK is the reply, mustn't grumble. Mustn't grumble. It's kind of like us. We'll say, well, I, I can't complain because it ain't going to do me any good anyway. Nobody's going to listen. That, that's kind of the idea. Mustn't grumble. When you think about the blessings of God in your life, when you think about the way he has provided for you in salvation, the way he sustains us, the way he's sanctifying us, our motto needs to be, mustn't grumble, mustn't grumble. We're all tempted to complain sometimes. We want bigger. We want more dramatic experiences of the power and the supernatural dynamics of God. We want things fixed, and yet we don't want to change anything. We want our kids to be happy, our marriages to be harmonious, and all those things. We want lives to be prosperous. And when they're not, when we feel like we're not living our best life now, we tend to complain. And the tendency is to say, I don't deserve this. 
I deserve better than this. It's a sober warning. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul doesn't think that grumbling is a small thing. Again, these are not difficult points to grasp, really. There's no hidden meaning here. There's no subtle theological um, profundity. It's just stop it. Stay away. Stop playing with sin. Beware of presuming upon the grace of God. You are standing on thin ice. Get to shore. Get to safety. Come back to Jesus, lest the ice give way beneath your feet. Isn't that exactly what he says in verse number 12? Of the 13 verses here, this is probably one that we are most familiar with. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. It's a terrible thing, this presumption. When we wander away from the Lord, standing on thin ice, all the while telling ourselves that we're safe. But we're not safe. So Paul says, take heed lest you fall. Hear the warning. Take action. Time to run back to Jesus. And then finally, I want us to notice the encouragement that he gives to comfort us. He says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This 13th verse may be one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied verses in all of God's word. Because it's from this verse of scripture that many people adopt the thinking that God will never put more on you than you can handle. You're going through a difficult patch, going through some challenges in your relationships, in the workplace, family matters, all those things. And someone will, will with good intention, say, well, you know, God will never put more on you than you can handle. That is not a biblical principle. God will often put more on you than you can handle to drive you to him. This is talking specifically about the matter of temptation. Two distinctly different responses in Scripture as it relates to trials, tribulations, challenges, things that come into our life, and temptation. Okay? As it relates to trials and tribulations and, and difficulties even, the biblical response is to bear up under it. The word is hupomene. Think of a, of, a, of a weightlifter getting up under a bar prepared to do a, a squat. You bear up under that. But the response to temptation is completely different. We're never told in Scripture to bear up under that. We're told to flee from it, run from it, get away from it. Now, God often uses the trials and the tribulations of life, the difficult patches, the, those times, to, to, to strengthen us. That's why an athlete goes to the gym. They, they've got to go in there and they've got to strengthen their muscles through that resistance. It's a completely different response as it relates to temptation. And so you'll notice here that there are three parts to uh, what Paul is teaching as it relates to this precious promise that we have in verse number 13. First of all, do not believe the lie that your temptation is unique. You're not a special case. Satan loves to trap us into thinking that our temptations somehow are unique. And because when you begin to believe that lie, you begin to conclude that the usual remedies will not work for me. There really is no help for me because I'm a unique case. 
But Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you than that which is common to man. But then notice the next three words there. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Christians are not powerless in the face of temptation. It's another lie that Satan loves to use to entrap us. There's nothing that you can do. You're helpless. You're in the grip of this thing. You're stuck. And so what do you do when you begin to believe that? We begin to say, well, if there's nothing I can do, then why fight? Why resist? Why struggle? Since all of my struggle is futile, why fight? No, Paul is saying, hey, keep your guard up. When I was an eight or nine-year-old kid, one Christmas, I got a boxing set. Okay, two set, two pairs of gloves, uh, a little bit of headgear and everything. And I can remember as a kid, I'd, I'd been watching, you know, some boxing matches on TV. And I admired the fancy footwork of some of the boxers and things, you know. And my dad was trying to teach me, you know, the proper stance, proper position, balance, and all these things. And he kept telling me to keep my guard up, keep my guard up, keep my guard I just wanted to focus on landing a punch. That's what I wanted to do. And so sure enough, you know, as we're kind of dancing around with one another, he's probably down on his knees at the time, and, and we're bopping around pretty soon. My, my guard would start coming down, and next thing you know, get hit, right? That, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you've you got to keep your guard up. You've got to keep your guard up. Some of you remember, you're old enough to remember Flip Wilson. What did Flip Wilson used to always say? The devil made me do it, right? Here's, here, here's newsflash for some of you believers. The devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't have that kind of authority in your life. That's why scripture says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It is a cop-out for you to say, I had no choice in the matter. Yeah, you did. <laughs> That's why we're told to flee temptation, to run from it. That's why we're told here that he has made a way of escape. A way of escape that God provides in his kindness and his providence that we may endure in our temptation. There is always an out. You can confess your sin to a, a trusted brother or sister, get the accountability that you need, cry out for help. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, scripture says. Cry out to the Lord in the midst of the crisis of your temptations. Flee your sin. Stop playing with it. That's good news especially for those of us who sometimes feel that we're daily loaded with the combat with our sin. Even the Apostle Paul described, he goes, man, there are things I don't want to do, but I find myself doing it. Then there's other things that I know I should do, but I, I struggle to do those things. Anybody else identify with that? I know I do. So by the grace of God, the promise of the word of God to you, you are not trapped, believer. When you're in Jesus, fight on. Hear the warnings. Flee from the thin ice to the shore. Hear the exhortations and stop it. Take action. The grace of God has provided for you the hope that change will come. And then finally, let's remember today how the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So the gospel issue is this. In him, there are all the resources that we need, both for forgiveness when temptation overwhelms and we fall, and for change and progress and transformation that we may not fall in the same way again. 
So we need to look to him and rest on him and not presume upon his grace, but cling to it with urgency and with desperation, trusting that he is our all-sufficient Savior, even when temptation comes my way, as the song says. The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's my experience. That's my flesh. That's my human inclination. I saw a bumper sticker a number of years ago that resonated with me. It said, lead us not into temptation. We already know how to get there. I don't know what it is you may be battling today. I don't know if one of these things that Paul mentions here as he's writing to the Corinthians, if it resonates with you. But I do know that in Jesus Christ, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is healing. There is sanctification. Sometimes it's tough. But by God's grace, by God's grace, we can prevail. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.